Chapter 23 of The Iron Horse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Del de Pinaroles. The Iron Horse by Robert Michael Ballantyne. Chapter 23 Details a Terrible Accident. In due time, that holiday came to a close, and the excursionists returned to the station where their train awaited them. Among the rest came Mrs. Tipps and Mrs. Merritt, but they did not arrive together, and therefore, much to their annoyance, failed to get into the same carriage. The weather, which up to that time had kept fine, began to lower, and, just as the train started, a smart thunder shower fell, but, being under cover, the holiday-makers heeded it not. Upon the whole they were an orderly band of excursionists. Some of the separate groups were teetotalers, and only one or two showed symptoms of having sought to increase their hilarity by use of stimulants. When the shower began, John Merritt and his mate put on their pilot cloth coats, for the screen that formed their only protection from the weather was a thin flat one, without roof or sides, forming only a partial protection from wind and rain. Night had begun to descend before the train left the station, and as the lowering clouds overspread the sky, the gloom rapidly increased until it became quite dark. "'We are going to have a bad night of it,' observed John Merritt as his mate examined the water gauge. "'Looks like it,' was Garvey's curt reply. The clatter of the engine and howling of the wind, which had by that time risen to a gale, rendered conversation difficult. The two men, therefore, confined themselves to the few occasional words that were requisite for the proper discharge of their duties. It was not a night on which the thoughts of an engine driver were likely to wander much. To drive an excursion train in a dark night through a populous country over a line which was crowded with traffic, while the rain beat violently on the little round windows in the screen, obscuring them and rendering it difficult to keep a good lookout, was extremely anxious work, which claimed the closest and most undivided attention. Nevertheless, the thoughts of John Mara did wander a little that night with the carriage behind him in which were his wife and child, but this wandering of thought caused him to redouble, rather than to relax, his vigilance and caution. Will Garvey consulted the water gauge for a moment, and then opened the iron door of the furnace in order to throw in more coal. The effect would have stirred the heart of Rembrandt. The instantaneous blinding glare of the intense fire shot through the surrounding darkness, lighting up the two men and the tender as if all were made of red-hot metal, flooding the smoke and steam clouds overhead with round masses and curling lines of more subdued light, and sending sharp gleams through the murky atmosphere into dark space beyond, where the ghostly landscape appeared to rush wildly by. Now it chanced that at that part of the line they had reached, a mineral train which had preceded them had been thrown off the rails by a bale of goods which had fallen from a previous goods train. Carelessness on the part of those who had loaded the truck, from which the bale had fallen, led to this accident. The driver and fireman of the mineral train were rather severely hurt, and the guard was much shaken as well as excited, so that they neglected to take the proper precaution of sending back one of their number to stop the train that followed them. This would have been a matter of little consequence had the line been worked on the block system, because, in that case, the danger signal would have been kept up, and would have prevented the excursion train from entering on that portion of the line until it was signaled clear. But the block system had been only partially introduced on the line. A sufficient interval of time had been allowed after the mineral train had passed the last station, and then, as we have seen, the excursion train was permitted to proceed. 
Thus it came to pass that at a part of the line where there was a slight curve and a deep cutting, John Merritt, looking anxiously through his circular window, saw the red taillight of the mineral train. Instantly he cried, Clap on the brakes, Bill! Almost at the same moment he reversed the engine and opened the whistle to alarm the guard, who applied his brakes in violent haze. But it was too late. The speed could not be checked in time. The rails were slippery, owing to rain. Almost at full speed they dashed into the mineral train with a noise like thunder. The result was appalling. The engine was smashed and twisted in a manner that is quite indescribable, and the tender was completely turned over, while the driver and fireman were shot as if from a cannon's mouth, high into the air. The first two carriages of the passenger train, and the last van of the mineral, were completely wrecked, and over these the remaining carriages of the passenger train were piled until they reached an incredible height. The guard's van was raised high in the air, with its ends resting on a third-class carriage, which at one end was completely smashed in by the van. At the time of the concussion, just after the terrible crash, there was a brief, strange, unearthly silence. All was still for a few seconds, and passengers who were uninjured gazed at each other in mute and horrified amazement. But death in that moment had passed upon many, while others were fearfully mangled. The silence was almost immediately broken by the cries and groans of the wounded. Some had been forcibly thrown out of the carriages, others had their legs and arms broken, and some were jammed into fixed positions from which death alone had relieved them. The scenes that followed were heart-rending. Those who were uninjured or only slightly hurt lent willing aid to extricate their less fortunate fellow travellers, but the howling of the night, the deluging rain, and the darkness of the night retarded their efforts, and in many cases rendered them unavailing. John Merritt, who, as we have said, was shot high into the air, fell by good fortune into a large bush. He was stunned at first, but otherwise uninjured. On regaining consciousness, the first thoughts that flashed across him were his wife and child. Rising in haste, he made his way towards the engine, which was conspicuous not only by its own fire, but by reason of several other fires which had been kindled in various places to throw light on the scene. In the wreck and confusion, it was difficult to find out the carriage in which Mrs. Merritt had travelled, and the people about were too much excited to give very coherent answers to questions. John, therefore, made his way to a knot of people who appeared to be tearing up the debris at a particular point. He found Joe Turner, the guard there, with his head bandaged and his face covered with blood. "'I've been looking for ye everywhere, John,' said Joe. "'She's there,' he added, pointing to a mass of broken timbers which belonged to a carriage, on the top of which the guard's van had been thrown, crushing it almost flat. John did not require to ask the meaning of his words. The guard's look was sufficiently significant. He said not a word, but the deadly pallor of his countenance showed how much he felt. Springing at once at the broken carriage, and seizing an axe from the hand of a man who appeared exhausted by his efforts, he began to cut through the planking so as to get at the interior. At intervals a half-stifled voice was heard crying piteously for John. "'Keep up heart, lass,' said John, in his deep, strong voice. "'I'll get thee out before long, God helping me.' Those who stood by lent their best aid, but anxious though they were about the fate of those who lay buried beneath that pile of rubbish, they could not help casting an occasional look of wonder, amounting almost to awe, on the tall form of the engine-driver, as he cut through and tore up the planks and beams with a power that seemed little short of miraculous. Presently he stopped and listened intently for a moment, while the perspiration rolled in big drops from his brow. "'Dost hear me, Mary?' he asked, in a deeply anxious tone. If any reply were uttered, it was drowned by the howling of the wind and the noise of the workmen. 
Again he repeated the question in an agonizing cry. His wife did not reply, but Gertie's sweet little voice was heard saying faintly, I think mother is dead. Oh, take us out, dear father, take us out, quick! Again John Merritt bowed himself to the task, and exerting his colossal strength to the utmost, continued to tear up and cast aside the broken planks and beams. The people around him, now thoroughly aroused to the importance of haste, worked with all their might. And, ere long, they reached the floor of the carriage, where they found mother and child jammed into a corner and arched over by a huge mass of broken timber. It was this mass that had saved them, for the rest of the carriage had been literally crushed into splinters. Close beside them was discovered the headless trunk of a young man, and the dead body of a girl who had been his companion that day. Gertie was the first taken out. Her tender little frame seemed to have yielded to the pressure and thus escaped, for, excepting a scratch or two, she was uninjured. John Merritt did not pause to indulge in any expression of feeling. He sternly handed her to the bystanders and went on powerfully but carefully removing the broken timbers and planks until he succeeded in releasing his wife. Then he raised her in his arms, staggered with her to the neighboring bank, and laid her down. Poor Mrs. Merritt was crushed and bruised terribly. Her clothes were torn, and her face was so covered with dust and blood as to be quite unrecognizable at first. John said not a word, but went down on his knees and began carefully to wipe away the blood from her features, in which act he was assisted by the drenching rain. Sad though his case was, there was no one left to help him. The cries of the unfortunate sufferer, still unextricated, drew everyone else away the moment the poor woman had been released. Ere long, the whole scene of the catastrophe was brilliantly illuminated by the numerous fires which were kindled out of the debris, to serve as torches to those who labored might and may, for the deliverance of the uninjured. Troops of people from the surrounding district quickly made their appearance on the scene, and while some of these lent effective aid in the work of the rescue, others brought blankets, water, and spirits to cover and comfort those who stood so much in need of help. As the wounded were got out and laid upon the banks of the line, several surgeons busied themselves in examining and binding their wounds, and the spot wore resemblance to a battlefield after the tide of war had passed over it. Seventeen dead and one hundred and fifty injured already lay upon the wet ground, while many of the living, who went about with blanched, solemn faces, yet with earnest, helpful energy, were bruised and cut badly enough to have warranted their retiring from the spot and having their own cases considered. Meanwhile, a telegram had been sent to Clatterby, and in a short time a special train arrived with several of the chief men of the line and a gang of a hundred surface men to clear away the wreck and remove the dead and injured. Many of those unhurt had made singularly narrow escapes. One man was seated in a third-class carriage when the concussion took place. The side of the carriage fell out, and he slid down on the rails just as the other carriages and vans piled up on the place he had left, killing or wounding all his fellow travellers. Beneath the rubbish next the tender, a mother and child were buried and several others. All were dead save the mother and child when the man began to dig them out, and before they succeeded in their labors, the mother had died also, though the child survived. In another carriage, or rather under it, a lad was seen lying with a woman's head crushed down on his breast and an infant beside her. They had to saw the carriage asunder before these could be extricated. The woman died almost immediately upon being released, but the lad and infant were uninjured. Elsewhere, a young girl, who had attracted attention by the sweet expression of her face, had been strangled. In another case, the surface men attempted to extricate a woman by sawing the broken carriage, under which she lay, but the more they sawed, the more did the splinters appear to cling round her, and when at last they got her out, she was dead, while another passenger in the same carnage 
escaped without a scratch. We would not prolong a painful description which may, perhaps, be thought too long already, yet within certain limits it is right that men should know what their fellows suffer. After all the passengers had been removed to the special train, the dead into vans and horse-boxes and the living into carriages, the surface men set to work to clear the line. Poor Mrs. Tipps was among the rescued, and, along with the others, was sent on to the Clatterby station by the special train. While the people were being placed in this train, John Merritt observed Edwin Gerwood in the crowd. He chanced to be at Clatterby when the telegram of the accident arrived, and ran down in the special train to render assistance. "'I'm glad to see you, sir,' he said in a low, earnest voice. "'My mate, Bill Garvey, must be badly hurt, for he's nowhere to be found. "'He must be under the wreck somewheres. "'I wouldn't leave the spot till I found him in ordinary circumstances, "'but my Mary—' "'He stopped abruptly. "'I hope Mrs. Merritt is not hurt,' said Edwin anxiously. "'John could not reply at first. "'He shook his head and pointed to a carriage near at hand. "'She's there, sir, with Gertie.' "'Gertie?' explained Edwin. Ay, poor thing, Gertie is all right. Thank the good Lord for that, but— Again he stopped, then with an effort continued. I couldn't quit them, you know, till I've got em safe home. But my mind will be easy, Mr. Gerwood, if you'll look after Bill. We was both throwed a good way from the engine, but I couldn't rightly say where. You'll not refuse— My dear Merritt, said Edwin, interrupting him and grasping his hand, you may rely on me. I shall not leave the ground till he is found and cared for. Thank ye, sir, thank ye said John, in some of his wonted hearty tone. As he returned, Edwin squeezed the hand and hastened to the train, which was just ready to start. Edwin went at once to the spot where the surface men were toiling at the wreck in the fitful light of the fires, which flared wildly in the storm, and, as they had by that time gathered in tense heat, bid defiance to the rain. There were several passengers, who had just been extricated, lying on the ground, some motionless, as if dead, others talking coherently. These he looked at in passing, but Garvey was not among them. Leaving them under the care of the surgeons, who did all that was possible in the circumstances for their relief, he ran and joined the surface men in removing the broken timbers of a carriage, from beneath which groans were heard. With some difficulty a woman was extricated and laid tenderly on the bank. Just then Edwin observed a guard, with whom he was acquainted, and asked him if the firemen had yet been found. "'Not yet, sir, I believe,' said the man. They say that he and the driver were flung to one side of the line. Edwin went towards the engine, and, judging the probable direction and distance to which a man might be thrown in such an accident, went to a certain spot and sought carefully around it in all directions. For some time he sought in vain, and was on the point of giving up in despair, when he observed a cap lying on the ground. Going up to it, he saw the form of a man half concealed by a mass of rubbish. He stooped and, raising the head a little, tried to make out the features but the light of the fires did not penetrate to the spot. He laid him down gently again and was about to hasten away for assistance when the man and said faintly, Is that you, Jack? No, my poor fellow, said Edwin, stooping down. Are you badly hurt? I was just going to fetch help to. Mr. Gerwood, said the man, interrupting, You don't seem to know me. I'm Garvey, the fireman. Where am I? Surely there's something wrong with my left arm. "'Oh, I remember now. Is Jack safe? And the missus and Gertie? Are they—' "'Don't exert yourself,' interrupted Edwin, as Will attempted to rise. "'You must keep quiet until I fetch a doctor. Perhaps you're not much hurt, but it is well to be careful. Will you promise me to be still?' "'All right, sir,' said Will promptly. 
Edwin hastened for assistance, and in a short time the fireman was carried to a place of comparative shelter and his wounds examined. Almost immediately after the examination Edwin knelt at his side and signed to those around him to retire. Garvey, he said in a low, kind voice, I'm sorry to tell you that the doctors say you must lose your left arm. Will looked intently in Edwin's face. Is there no chance of saving it? he asked earnestly. It might never be much to speak of, sir, but I'd rather run some risk than lose it. Edwin shook his head. No, he said sadly. They tell me amputation must be immediately. Otherwise, your life may be sacrificed. I said I would like to break it to you, but it is necessary, my poor fellow, that you should make up your mind at once. God's will be done, said Will in a low voice. I'm ready, sir. The circumstances did not admit of delay. In a few minutes the fireman's left arm was amputated above the elbow, the stump dressed, and himself laid in as sheltered a position as possible to wait the return of the train that was to convey the dead and wounded, more recently extricated, to Clatterby. When that train arrived at the station, it was touching to witness the pale, anxious faces that crowded the platform as the doors were opened and the dead and sufferers carried out to hear the cries of agony when the dead were recognized, and the cries of grief, strangely, almost unnaturally, mingled with joy, when some who were supposed to have been killed were carried out alive. Some were seen almost fondling the dead with a mixture of tender love and abject despair. Others bent over them with a strange stare of apparent insensibility, or looked round on the pitying bystanders inquiringly, as if they would say, Surely, surely, this cannot be true. The sensibilities of some were stunned, so that they moved calmly about and gave directions in a quiet, solemn voice, as if the great agony of grief were long past, though it was painfully evident that it had not yet begun, because the truth had not yet been realized. Among those who were calm and collected, though heart-stricken and deadly pale, was Lou Merritt. She had been sent to the station by her father to await the arrival of the train, with orders to bring Will Garvey home. When Will was carried out and laid on the platform alive, an irresistible gush of feeling overpowered her. She did not give way to noisy demonstration, as too many did, but knelt hastily down, raised his head on her knee, and kissed his face passionately. "'Bless you, my darling,' said Will, in a low, thrilling voice, in which intense feeling struggled with a desire to make light of his misfortune. "'God has sent a cordial that the doctors haven't got to give.' "'Oh, William!' exclaimed Lou, removing the hair from his forehead, but Lou could say no more. "'Tell me, darling.' said Garvey in an anxious tone. Is father safe, and mother, and Gertie? Father is safe, thank God, replied Lou with a choking voice, and Gertie also, but mother... She is not dead, exclaimed the fireman. No, not dead, but very, very much hurt. The doctors fear she may not survive it, Will. No more was said, for at that moment four porters came up with a stretcher and placed Garvey gently upon it. Lou covered him with her shawl, a piece of tarpaulin was thrown over all, and thus he was slowly borne away to John Merritt's home. End of chapter 23 Recording by Dalde Pignaroli